Is the world on fire? Welcome to Is the World on Fire, a podcast created by students and alumni at the University of San Diego Scrub School of Peace Studies. My name is Franco Escobar, and I will be your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Ronald Neeson, author of The Memory Seeker, a novel exploring the complexities of war crimes, the vagaries of memory, and the temptations of revenge. Ronald is professor of practice in the Department of Sociology, Political Science, and International Relations at the University of San Diego and has vast experiences in digital activism, open source investigations, law, anthropology, and other subjects. Stay with us as we discuss the role of fiction and storytelling, our obligations with the past, and the role of storytelling in addressing the challenges in the real world. Good morning, Ron. How are you today? Good morning, Franco. Uh, I'm very well, thank you. It's difficult for me to think of a time that would be more burning than the time where you published your first novel for anybody. So <laughs> congratulations. You know, Thank I'm you. sure our audience is going to be really happy and excited to hear about you directly. From your point of view, is the world on fire? The world's on fire. Why? Why is it? The world is very clearly on fire. I'm not ambiguous about it. From the perspective of the subject matter that I deal with, it's on fire largely because of the resurgence of authoritarianism in many forms, but in global leadership in particular, in state leadership, I should say. And it's a political crisis that actually has to do with, in some ways, our loss of memory. The subject matter and the, the use of the word memory in the title of my book is a specific reference to this lifeline that we have of memory to address our concerns or my concerns and you know it should be everyone's concerns about authoritarian governments and what they're doing to the world and where we're going i see memory as like the bucket brigade of addressing where the world is on fire right now it's a collective effort that we need to undertake in order to shift things in a better direction we're going to get more into the details of this um, sure, of you know, project of addressing issues of memory. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself. What is your life story? Can you tell us a bit about where you grew up and all of that? Well, for those who end up reading The Memory Seeker, you'll see a lot of parallels between the main character and my biography. Yeah. It's, it's normal. A lot of writers do it. I'm not alone in this. I'm Dutch-Canadian in origin. My parents were teenagers during World War II, and they immigrated in 1952 to Canada. Canada liberated the Netherlands at the end of World War II. So it had you know this, this connection and this sense of liberation, and my parents then sought freedom in a new country. My mother talked about the war and the German occupation. My father, not so much. And there were indications that he suffered from trauma from the war. And there were questions and curiosity that I had about, you know, what is the story like? Where am I from? So I'm, I was growing up uh, thinking about many of the questions that are prominent in, in the themes of this book. I later um, became an anthropologist in part, I suppose wanting to explore other 
ways of life and it wasn't in my mind really starting out to investigate political and you know environmental crises but this happened along the way i did my phd work from cambridge in northern mali which became you know not a place that i could return to it was unstable and violent I maintained my relationships with the Tuaregs through my later work in the Indigenous Peoples Movement, and they became prominent in the sort of African lobby that was seeking recognition of the Tuareg people as an Indigenous people from Africa. So my work in Northern Canada and work from Mali dovetailed. And so I maintained these connections and my partnerships with the Tuareg people became an important part of another theme in this novel or another location, which was the civil war in Mali in 2012 to 13, and its aftermath and its investigation, the investigation by the International Criminal Court of this aftermath. So I had these two experiences, a family experience and a, and a professional experience, of course, flavored with important relationships that came together in the novel that I put together in the novel to make comparisons. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see the parallels between Peter, the main character. So you you had this desire for knowing more about your background and um, you decided to study anthropology and you went to Mali. So can you just elaborate a bit more on your decision-making process of wanting to become an anthropologist? Why would someone want to do what you did and how did it turn out? Yeah, we're not, you know, people are not often encouraged to become anthropologists, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> right? It's like, I want my son to be an anthropologist. We don't, yep. we yep. don't get that very often. <laughs> yeah. It was an interesting sort of odd decision, but I liked anthropology for its openness to other ways of being in the world. And I think that was key to the direction of my curiosity, which wasn't just about lingering in the thoughts of people who've written important things about the world. It was a desire to experience it and to base uh, whatever philosophy I developed or outlook on the world from the ground up, like from people's experience in it. Mm. And that's always been a driving force in my life. And another is what anthropology is able to do with its ethnography. Like we go and we get all this data, but then we're expected to write in a different way. And so it has more of a literary inclination. Interesting. How did that take you then to Mali? Well, it took me to Mali from Cambridge because Cambridge at the time that I was there in the 1980s was very strong in African studies. It didn't make sense to go anywhere else. It, you know, British social anthropology had its roots in the colonial system. Let's be honest about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so to follow the pathways that were available to me, it made sense to go to Africa. I had supervision uh -huh. in Africa. I had support in going there, but I decided to be a rebel and not to go to former British colonies, but to go to former French colonies. So I was supported by colleagues in France. Uh, who encouraged me to go to Mali. Mm. So after that, what happened? I read in your biography at the end of your book that you're described as someone who has done digital activism, open source investigations, human rights and social justice. 
initiatives. Could you talk a bit about your professional life outside the academy? Right, sure. So much of my career has been concerned with the international movement of indigenous peoples. And that was a result of where I went for my professional life in Canada after my PhD. Mm. I worked with the Cree Board of Health and Social Services of James Bay as my first professional appointment. And I did consulting, flying in various villages in northern Quebec. But then through the Crees, became involved or participated in UN meetings on the rights of indigenous peoples of various kinds through the 1990s. And actually, my interest in digital activism came from, ironically, um, the indigenous peoples who mm. were very tech-savvy, yeah. interestingly, in the way that they went about collaborating, uh, forming common cause globally. Um, How so? Well, they they were like netizens. They picked up the internet and they posted their their claims and their concerns. It was a way for them to bypass journalistic filters and reach audiences directly and to, to let them know about their justice claims and causes and to get sympathy and participation from a wider public. That was their leverage, right? A major source of it. So I became curious about this. What would you say the everyday life of a digital activist looks like? Oh, well, it looks like everybody else. But a, a digital activist thinks nimbly in their use of the technologies of communication and reaching out to publics. Hmm. I think that's the best way to put it. Okay. Um, and what about open source investigations? Could you tell us a bit about what exactly you were doing? That came a little later. Through my work in the UN, I became interested in the institutions themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually thought of the United Nations as a field site in the way that other anthropologists might think of a village community or you know some of the classic subject matter of anthropology. I didn't see the hierarchy and the rules and the buildings or the setting of the UN in Geneva and New York as an obstacle to ethnography or anthropological research, but as an invitation to do it in a different setting. And other anthropologists legal anthropologists had done similar work. Once interested in the UN, then institutions of global governance were compelling. And I started thinking about international criminal law as a serious subject matter mm -hmm. because it also related to my field site, mm. my original doctoral research in Mali, which had become a war zone and a subject of the International Criminal Court's investigation into the destruction of UNESCO property in uh, 2012 to 13. And it has continued uh, with uh, other indictments, two major indictments. Mm. That reminds me a little bit about the book itself and um, Peter going out there and how they're trying to get conversations on a recording or photographs and all That's of that right. to create the records of what's going on, right? Um, yes. Would you say that was partly some of the things you were doing as an open source investigator? <laughs> well, I was, tra I was trained in open source investigation and that became the foundation for looking at how the process happened. And the investigation that I'm looking at um, in the ICC was 
uh, one of the first to really extensively use digital video evidence. Mm. And th that creates an interesting subject matter, first of all, to describe the trauma that people experience looking at this, the investigators, uh, which we don't often think about. And then the challenge of making it this kind of, of digital video evidence solid enough to meet the exacting standards of an ICC prosecution. And part of that involves linkage evidence. You can't just use, you know, the video. You have to connect the video to the site, to interviews, to other things from the field. Mm. So, you know, digital evidence does not eliminate field investigation. It's an important part of an overall dossier. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think we have to go into the rabbit hole, but I'm sure with AI technologies creating video, image, audio, right. that this sort of digital evidence concept may fall apart in the sense that unless you have that linkage, unless to you the, have the linkage to the field evidence, evidence right. right? Yeah, um, interesting. Um, all right, so I want to start getting into the book itself. And to begin with, I want to make sure that our audience knows what we mean by a few terms. So in your book, often we are in the context of war crimes, for example, or Nazi occupation right. um, and the International Criminal Court. So I, I want to clarify what those mean for those in our audience without the same level of expertise. So could we maybe start with war crimes and, and explain a bit what that couple of words mean? Sure. There's long been war crimes. There were war crimes before World War II. But World War II really focused the world's, the international community's attention on the importance of dealing with an aggressor state um, of the sort that arose in World War II and created an alliance and it was the aftermath of World War II that brought about another global legal order, if you want to call it. And the Nuremberg and, and uh, Tokyo trials were key to this. The international community was so egregiously offended by the horrors that had occurred in World War II that there was a retroactive effort to make mm -hmm. the worst parts of of this conflict illegal and to, to create a legal um, framework that would make it illegal moving forward. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it is my understanding that I, I think maybe what you're talking about is crimes against humanity. Right, genocide. Those, those right? were not like... That we don't want a repetition mm -hmm. of the horrors of World War II, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Um, so in your book, I think one of the first few pages says that these, some of these war crimes are basically murder, mutilation, torture, attacks against protected objects, lack of due process even. And so I was wondering what are more recent examples of these kind of war crimes and why do exploring the imagination of these crimes matters in the context of today? Could you? Elaborate on that point. Well, it matters for today. Uh, the ICC is actually a very new institution, relatively speaking. Mm. And at the time that this uh, the scene takes place in the in the book or the 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 investigation setting in northern Mali, it's only like 
roughly 10 years old and it's sort of not quite found its feet. So that adds a little bit of tension or a little pressure on the investigators. And there's an effort to create legitimacy for the court, right? Which is kind of an orphan in the international system. It still is. Mm. Like many of the most powerful states have not signed yet signed the Rome Statute to become members of the International Criminal Court. That includes the United States, Russia, China, and others, mm -hmm. right? So a part of what is happening in the story is a sort of a, a macro effort to um, move forward with the agenda of a new fragile institution that is told through the fine-grained experience of an investigator mm. going to the field who is committed to this mm. project, mm -hmm. wants to support it in some way, but, you know, like an, uh, many a protagonist journeys encounters all kinds of obstacles along the way. Okay. Again, in the, in the spirit of clarifying a few terms, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, could you just give us the like level one definition of what that is, what it does? It's the international institution that is assigned the task or has, has been given the task of prosecuting those crimes that the international community has decided are the crimes of war mm -hmm. and crimes against humanity of the worst sort mm -hmm. that uh, we all reject. So say someone in our audience knows about some of these crimes um, happening in the context of war. What is the process through which the ICC takes cases? How, how is a case referred to the ICC and then what happens next? Well, the ICC can only undertake an investigation at the invitation of a state party. In the Ukraine, our most recent experience that we can all relate to, neither the Ukraine nor Russia have signed the Rome Statute, but the Ukraine invited the court to assist in its investigations of uh, war crimes on its territory. So the ICC has jurisdiction. It's very important for the court to receive that invitation, especially from a, a state party. So even if a state is not a signatory of the Rome Statute, uh, it can be subjected to an investigation mm -hmm. when it is involved in a conflict in a state's territory that has requested the court right. to investigate. Yeah, I think it was a few days ago I read something on the news about President Vladimir Putin facing two charges recently. I'm not going to go into the details because I don't remember what it was exactly. He was actually um, indicted minutes before we met. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. What yeah. does indicted mean? Uh, he is uh, charged um, formally by the court, mm -hmm. which means that his travel is restricted, right? He, he doesn't recognize the court and he won't render himself to the court to face these charges. But it means that a state that receives him, if he travels to another state, that state has an obligation to arrest him and send him to the Hague. Wow. Yeah. I remember in your book, someone says that the ICC is built on layers of secrecy. And so I want to know what you 
meant by that sentence, if you remember. I don't know if you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really remember. But from the point of view, that's this is from the point of view of somebody who's lower, right? Who who's just hired at a lower level, coming into the court, not knowing what his assignment is. There's a hierarchy. It's a hierarchical institution. So people are making decisions that some of the workers, however important and instrumental their job is, don't have much say, you know, they don't have any input. And that's true of any, you know, functioning institution. But there is something special about a court that is subject to the pushback from powerful states. Mm. So it guards its secrets a little more carefully. Anybody who visits the court will see that it's very careful. Mm. It has these you know, bomb-proof windows. It has a palm print reader to get through the door into the court. It's built on the model of a medieval palace with a keep in the middle and the guard room in the front. And it has a moat, you know, that you can only cross on certain points. So you, you know, looking at it as a visitor, like looking at the architecture, the way a researcher might, it's like, oh man, this place is really interesting, really careful about its security. And I'm sure secrets are a part of that. Its decision-making process is part of that. Those layers and barriers to justice, if you may, remind me also of, of barriers to memory itself. Right. Um, and I think in your book, one of the clearest examples, for me at least, is there's this ca character named Nora. Right. who's visually impaired, and she goes to a library where she's trying to access old textbooks sure. that are delicate, and therefore she needs to use gloves and she needs to be careful with the book. And she has a magnifier that she's trying to use to access this book. Right. Um, and books are memory holders, right? right. They, they are, Our imprints in them allow us to access information we may not be able to remember or you may don't know about yet, right? And she's kicked out because she's using this magnifier and she's, but I have a disability, right? <laughs> right and, yeah. and I <laughs> have luck. rights to, to do this. And, and the librarian is like, well, sorry, we don't have any like procedures to deal with your disability, right? So just, I just want to know like how you came up with this idea of having someone who's visually impaired and what that means to access to memory and justice. I had a dear friend growing up who was visually impaired. Uh, in the way that I describe. And she had the object that you're referring to, a strip magnifier that she would go down the, the page with. And it struck me that the visual impairment is important for a couple of reasons, or useful for telling the story for a couple of reasons. One is that she encounters, as you just described, injustice in a small scale, like triv trivial, like micro indignities, right? Mm -hmm. But being kicked out for touching the page with her, which is, a, you know, I invented that. This didn't really happen, <laughs> but it could conceivably, right? Yeah. So she has a heightened sense of injustice that makes her a good partner for somebody who's investigating these larger injustices. They get it at a certain level, right? Mm -hmm. And another thing is that being visually impaired in the way that she is, has her see the world differently. It has her perceiving it otherwise, yeah? So that she's able to bring nuance and, and sensitivity to relationships that our main character lacks in his, you know, forward striving to, mm -hmm. you know, correct the world's wrongs. Mm -hmm. 
So could we jump a bit into the context of the storyline of the book? What is a spoiler-free summary? <laughs> spoiler-free summary of, of what the book is about. Oh, spoiler-free summary. Well, our, our hero, Peter Decker, is hired by the court to investigate war crimes in Mali. He's hired because he has some experience in the region and previous experience as a, as a forensic anthropologist investigator. But when he moves to The Hague and begins to reconnect with family members that were long lost, he finds that his personal story background is hazy. And looking into this personal background, he discovers the possibility, there's not a spoiler in the word possibility, that his own family, his own father, might be implicated in collaboration with the Nazis, uh, if not worse. So while he's investigating war crimes professionally, he's investigating his own family background and the secrets that lie hidden. In a previous conversation you and I had, you mentioned that this story is partly related to your own personal life. Would you be willing to share a bit of that? It's related to my personal life in that I never really did learn what my father's role was in World War II. Mm -hmm. I know that he suffered nightmares. I know that you know, he was 20 years old around the time of D-Day. I know certain things. I was in the Netherlands after I drafted the book, having lunch with a, with a group of relatives. I had a, an aunt who's married into the family who was nice to meet again. But just spontaneously, she didn't know that I'd written this book. Oh, wow. um, she said, you know, I never really figured out what your father did during the war. And it was like, oh, my gosh, you know. Yeah, neither do I. This lack of memory, it, it becomes possible to fill it with anything. You can imagine anything. Yeah. And so that personal experience with a memory vacuum or a lack of personal family narrative translated to the character. That reminds me, there's a moment in the book, and I think this is my favorite potential quote from the book that I've encountered. And it's when someone says that to fight evil, you have to know it. And someone else replies, to fight evil, you have to silence it. That's a wonderful contrast to me. Because I think it reflects the difficulty of whether we want to know things and whether knowing them allows us to then fight them. Right. Or whether sometimes we're better off not knowing, right? In the context of this conversation, I believe they're talking about this personal identity and history right. with the rest of the world, right? Whether or not you yourself have a family history of involvement in what is today known perhaps as one of the most bizarre events in history, right? The Nazi occupation and the war, the Second World War. And on the other hand, what this reminds me of is the way in which states deal with their identities as national things, right? Like whether states want to make certain kinds of information afloat and visible to everybody mm -hmm. or whether they want to silence certain aspects of their history, right? Right. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, that's really important quandary that we now face, right? Because there's a crisis of information and many people don't know who to trust, where to turn to, to get reliable information about the world. 
And that's in addition to the manipulations that politicians will undertake in order to create a sense of crisis and cultivate a following and place themselves in a position where they offer a solution to people who face a crisis, largely of their own making, right? Yeah. There is a way in which the conundrum that you've picked out of the dialogue in the book points to a much bigger issue that we're now facing, especially with the explosion of new media and the decline of the local reliable sources of information, mostly reliable right. people depended on, right? There's a crisis of journalism, a crisis of information, crisis of authenticity through this, these inventions of social media and the way that they use and exploit the people who are, you know, trying to get a grip on the world and what's, what's happening. So part of the authoritarian crisis that we talked about at the beginning stems from this tension between knowing authoritarianism and silencing it. Right. And if you silence it, does that mean that you're playing along with authoritarians' own efforts towards censorship? Where does that take you when you begin to engage in shutting down these voices that are rallying people towards the dismantling of our institutions and our laws. You know, a personal confession, I think there are things that I prefer not to know sometimes, you know, I'm like, <laughs> right. I, I would rather just silence that I don't want to know, right? Like, uh, yeah. and I think, I think there's also some wisdom to that sometimes in specific circumstances, but. Right. So I know this is your first fiction book, but you've written 10-ish non-fiction books. yeah, written. Um, so what, what is the importance of fiction? Why did you decide to write a fictional novel instead of another non-fiction book? I think, oddly, fiction allows you to get to truth a different way. It's oblique. It isn't direct. I think it's some T.S. Eliot or a quote that's attributed to T.S. Eliot that talks about plot being the bone you throw the dog to get into the house, right? So we, you tell a story, but you're telling the story in order to bring another topic, another revelation to the reader who maybe doesn't intend for that knowledge to reach them. Nonfiction has to be much more direct, right? You have to tell the reader what you're going to tell them, then you have to keep your promise, and the reader has to then read the knowledge, hopefully in a compelling way, mm -hmm. uh, and come away with, you know, what you promised them. Mm -hmm. Fiction writing strings the reader along a little more and gives the writer more room to bring in ideas that they might not intend. Mm. So without having to keep your promise as a nonfiction writer, <laughs> what, do you, what do you expect the average reader of your book will get by the end of it? Well, they'll get a story, right? Mm -hmm. I wrote it as a story that could keep keep your attention, like a page turner, it's sometimes mm -hmm. called, right? Mm -hmm. So good. Beach read, page turner, you know, maybe some greater aspiration to literary glory, who knows, right? But also the subject matter I thought was compelling. And so the, the setting and the subject matter were things that I wanted to discuss. 
whether in fiction or nonfiction. Uh, fiction is a kind of a co-creation because we're giving readers, our readers, these little bits of experience. And that I found interesting to do. Almost at the end of your book, there's a chapter titled in Latin, Memento Mortuis. Right. Memento Mortuis. I've seen online after a couple Google searches that it's also referred to as Memento Mori. It was very interesting because everything I could find online referred to the kinds of obligations we have to the death. Right. Right. And how we construct memory as an obligation. Why did you choose this part at the end and what, what it means to you, this, this obligation to, to the past and the death? Yeah, Memento Mori is... Uh... You know, a, a, a classic term or phrase that goes all the way back to the ancient world, of course, which means, remember, to hold before you the specter of your own mortality, right? And to live according to that. But I changed the Latin to mean remember the dead. This is different from remembering your own mortality as a way to live better. Mm. It's remembering the dead as a way to live better and there's a significant difference mm. so it's not an error like it's not supposed to be mm. um, the more common term mm, so let me let me clarify memento mori is remember your own mortality right memento remember mortuis death, yeah. remember the dead the dead yeah okay. oh interesting so it's death versus the dead and so this gets back to the main theme of the book again by remembering the dead we're able to live better by remembering the dead, we're able to avoid some of the errors of the past. Wow. Mm. Fascinating. I want to give you the chance also to tell our audience anything that might be on your calendar for the next year, something to look out, um, um, how to get your book, any events, any activities, projects. Right. So um, The Memory Seeker is on sale online in all major booksellers. For those of you who are in San Diego area, you'll find it on the bestseller table at Warwick's Books in La Jolla. Uh, and we're working on getting it picked up by other uh, retailers and indie bookstores. That's where we are now. My next project is going to be set in Canada with an American protagonist looking at uh, rural life in the interior of BC and the history of Indian residential schools. Wow. Um, Going back to the early 1970s. Is it a fiction work? It's a fiction work again. Wow. So it's taking the experience I had writing The Memory Seeker and turning to another area of research that I have uh, still have much to say about. I know that some of our audience might be interested in the process of writing a fiction book. So is there anything that you wish you had known before you wrote and published The Memory Seeker that could have served you well in the process of writing it and publishing it? I learned uh, the hard way along the way. I think that it's important to keep in mind the amount of revision that it takes in order to craft a piece of fiction. It takes more attention than nonfiction, more attention to you know, word choice to sentence structure to paragraphing, and it takes time. So you can churn something out, sure. It's actually good to churn out the first draft. Then to do the story honor requires sitting with it 
making sure that there are no glaring contradictions in mm. the trajectory and the timelines and all of this. It's it's quite 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 hard. Quite different. <laughs> it's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for being here with us. It's been a pleasure. And please come back at some point. Thanks. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Before you go, we want to hear from you. Share your questions, stories, or ideas on the fires you see in today's world. Contact us on Instagram at crockschool or via email at istheworldonfire at gmail.com and let us know what is your fire. Today's episode was produced by Thea Clement, McCoy Turpin, and me, Franco Castro Escobar, with special help from Scott Lundergan and Ryan Murphy. It was edited by Jim O'Connell, with original music by Victor Daniel Castro Escobar, and promotion is made possible by Kevin Dobbins, Tony Campos, Grayson Walker, and Andrew Byers. We'd also like to offer a special thanks to the Dean of the Croc School, Dr. Patricia Marquez, and please join us next time.